1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. We're kicking off with Damien Bradfield, co founder and chief creative officer of WeTransfer. Here's the host, Rosamund Irwin, with more.
0: Today, we're speaking to a tech leader who's at the heart of a tool used by creatives and other businesses the world over WeTransfer. Damien Bradfield is a co founder and the chief creative officer of the site that allows users to send big files across the internet, files that would leave other email servers struggling under their weight. It's why so many people, from filmmakers and designers to, yes, podcast makers, have come to use it for their projects, along with other services such as Dropbox and iCloud. Not only a place to send all that content, WeTransfer makes a lot of its own. That ranges from its culture platform highlighting global creativity, WePresent, to the Ideas Report, an annual global survey analysing where the creative and tech industries are headed. Damien published his own book on how we use tech in the modern age, The Trust Manifesto, What You Need to Do to Create a Better Internet, in 2020. The Ideas Report is now available to check out online. Among its findings are that creative hotspots are moving away from the usual Western hubs and that women are using the disruption of the pandemic to create more opportunities. Damien joins us now to talk about it all. Welcome to Intelligence Squared.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I think let's start with the ideas report. Tell me first a bit about why WeTransfer does this research. Who's it for? What do you learn from it? And what can the rest of us take from it?
1: So, this is the fourth year of the ideas report. So, it started in 2018. And we, you know, in a privileged position, really, that we have an incredible user base so 80 million plus users that turn up every month to use our services and fortunately again we have a pretty good relationship with them so you know if we ask them to take part in something we get a pretty good response better than i think a lot of other companies might and um you know over the years we would ask them you know what they were feeling or what they were experiencing or what work was exciting or what was really motivating them and we obviously used it for our own good, but it felt like we had a bigger responsibility. And it felt like if we were to you know, really try to dig in, we could perhaps extrapolate some bigger trends or some bigger movements or identify some things that could help others. And you know, we've been asked previously why we would share this information. It's not our information. I mean, it's information that our users have. And it's information that we think is you know, only really powerful if it's actually in the hands of people that can benefit from it and do something with it. So it's been a long project. I mean, in 2018, it was, it felt quite surface level. 2021, 2020 was obviously nearly all about COVID. Unfortunately, we're not quite through that phase yet, but in 2021, we tried to avoid it. Um, We tried to talk around the issues that, you know, have perhaps been exacerbated by COVID and that um, are now facing the creative industry. And there's a ton of very interesting insight that I think came out of it that, again, is only useful in the hands of, Of many, it's not useful if it's just uh, within the walls of WeTransfer.
0: So, I mean, most companies use market research to benefit themselves effectively. You know, it gains them a competitive advantage. But like you say, people are quite puzzled why you'd share this when it is quite that helpful and quite that insightful and also such a big survey. Just explain to me a little bit about how WeTransfer made that decision, that this was information that should be shared.
1: I think it's honestly an intrinsic belief within the company that it isn't ours. Our bread and butter is in basically an advertising business and a subscription business. And everything else around that is really an, an, uh, an added benefit or almost a luxury. We feel really, really honored that you know we've had 10 years building up this audience space and working with that audience. And I think we have a relationship with our audience that is really built on trust. And I think if you understand you know, what a trusting relationship feels like. Maybe some people that are asking those questions may not understand what a trusting relationship is, but it's one where there's you know, a certain degree of honesty and unconditional giving or mutual respect. And I feel really proud that, we, um, that that's the culture that the company has adopted over time. And I really believe that you know, our user base really respects us for it it's it's their insight at the end of the day and all we do really is package it up and present it back the design you know we spend a long time on trying to make it look decent that's something that you know we transfer as always spend a lot of time and money against but the thing I love about it is that it's that information that we have a right to and an access to information that is really is really powerful in the hands of many as I said previously so you know what I'm really excited about is if I take some of the insights particularly around Gen Z which you know, I've, I've struggled with personally to try to understand. I'm not Gen Z, clearly. I'm a different generation. But I think if I look at some of the issues that we have within the company and I hear from friends and other people with you know, a strong Gen Z workforce, I found it quite difficult to understand what it was that they were looking for, what's motivating them in the workplace and why have we been talking about for some time this great resignation, which I'm sure everyone is sick and tired of hearing about. But, you know, what is it at the root cause that's making people feel as if they have to move or want to move or don't want to stick around in one place? And I really think that some of the work that we did in the, in the ideas report, once we share it, can add weight to another piece of research that somebody else might be gathering at the same time. And those compounded really can help us identify some of the bigger sociological issues that... I think, are facing us right now.
0: So let's look at the findings of the report. You mentioned the findings around Gen Z. um, So let's start there. What is it that the report found in terms of what that young generation wants?
1: Flexibility. So I think the number one word that any corporation needs to understand and really embrace today is flexibility. And we've seen that our user base was particularly motivated by, I think, by change and by flexibility, by by being able to move and have different stimulus. And it's hardly unusual, is it? I don't know if you, your kids are very young, but minor teenagers. And, um, you know, their attention span is very short. They are fed information at an incredible pace. And all the technology and media that they're absorbing today is at such a pace that they are consuming so much that their attention spans, I think, are shorter than mine or our generation. If that's the case with regards to social media and the way that they absorb media and talk to their friends, then surely it will probably be the same when it comes to work and the stimulus that they require from a job. And I also think that the market that's been created, particularly over the last two or three years around cryptocurrencies and NFTs, e-commerce platforms that you can create yourself where you can earn income on the side, I think is also a major contributor to it because In my first job, I earned £16,500 a year as a crappy uh, account manager in an advertising agency. If I could have supplemented that income by selling, trading some NFTs and building a website and selling t-shirts on the side, I would have absolutely have done it. And it would have helped me massively. I mean, you've got to pay off student debts and student loans and stuff. I think that is what we're seeing today, that employers need to understand that flexibility that's required by somebody that's a You know, Gen Z, and embrace it as opposed to trying to control and almost smother uh, young employees into the somewhat old school employment terms of five days a week, 70 hours a week, whatever it might have been in the past. I don't think that's appealing to anybody today that's uh, in their 20s and has access to income from many other revenue streams. There's a
0: more negative side to this too that the report looks at which is the stress and mental health issues amongst that generation. What did you find out there?
1: Well I mean again it's unsurprising unfortunately and it's all been exacerbated particularly the last couple of years. If I was going through COVID and being locked down and earning £16,500 as I did when I first started out sitting on the end of my bed every day locked up at home I would have also had some mental health issues. I can't say that I would have dealt with it particularly well. So I don't think it's particularly surprising. I also think, again, this is where the research that we did compounded with other research that's happening. And at the moment, I'm referencing a Morgan Stanley document and a project we've been talking to um, Ruby Wax about was understanding that there is suddenly a definitive conclusion that climate change is real. That felt like in the last year, it was definitive. And understanding that if you're 20, and there's little that you can do on your own about it, And then being locked up in your room and then doing a job that you wish that you were perhaps not doing or thinking, if I only sold more NFTs or sold more T-shirts on uh, my Squarespace site, I could earn more money than I'm doing right now. What on earth am I doing? I don't think it's a surprise in the slightest that there are mental health concerns and mental health issues greater than we've ever seen before. Um, And I think if you understand depression, the number one driver of depression is a lack of control. And I think that has been never more pertinent for for any of us, to be frank, but particularly for a younger generation that somewhat are not to blame for the issue, right?
0: And you mentioned climate change there. What do they want companies to do and companies particularly that they work for with regards to addressing climate change?
1: So, I mean, everybody is asking for companies to step up. So, the Ideas Report is one piece of research that we've recently done. The Materiality Report is another piece of research we've just concluded And that was between our employees and shareholders and our partners. And it's across the board, climate change, sustainability is the number one thing that they demand us as a company to be responsible for and to try and find solutions for. And diversity and equality is the second. This is something that the tech industry has not been particularly good at in uh, embracing a diverse working culture. I'm quite proud to say that we're pretty much 50/50 female male um, across the organisation and certainly through we present we try very hard to make sure that our work and uh, the partnerships projects we do is is very much representative of every continent on the planet throughout the year and of of every sexuality you know that's the second biggest demand and i say demand because i really think it is an absolute mandate that as a company, you need to be talking about these things, being transparent about them, and perhaps that's something else that is a you know, big stimulus for us with the Ideas Report, is there is a real demand for transparency today. Um, companies, individuals are, you know, required almost to be as transparent as possible, and I think um, the Ideas Report goes some way towards, you know, trying to show what's happening on our platform, um, and that compounded with us becoming a B corporation and. Um, sharing as much insight as we possibly can. I think it's, um, again, our attempt to answer this demand that I think exists from younger employees.
0: Um, There are other findings in this report. There's a very bold claim that creativity is dying in the West. And and basically, the creativity is now coming from emerging markets. What did you find out around that?
1: Well, I don't think that's new news, to be honest. So unfortunately, some of the results that we found, which were a little bit depressing for me, were exactly the same issues in the creative industry as I experienced 20 years ago. So there was a belief in the United Kingdom and the US that they were the epicenter of everything amazingly creative. And um, for a lot of Americans and Brits, I think that's still the case. Um, Whereas if you would, in reality, go to any of the award shows, you'd see a ton of awards being gifted to Latin America you know, Brazilian agencies, Indian creatives and designers. It's a bit of a myth, really, that it's all been coming from the West for you know, the last 20 years. This, this has already been happening. What was also, though, interesting in the report was that it identified risk takers. And again, this probably doesn't come as any major surprise. But what was evident was that our Mexican colleagues and um, Latin American friends are far far more willing to take creative risks than the majority of creatives in the West, and I think to some degree again technology has got you know something to do with that. I think we as companies as individuals have become slightly more risk averse as we look at data, historic data, to tell us what everything in the future is going to look like. And my belief is that that leads to you know less creativity because it, it forces people to be less risk takers and. The research was pretty clearly showing that isn't the case in in Latin America, where they seem to be still far more willing to go with their gut and to go out on a limb on an idea, which is super important for creativity.
0: What about your own path to creativity? You mentioned, you know, earning very little at the start of your career. What was your path to becoming someone senior in this world?
1: Oh, well, I mean, it's a squiggly line. It's definitely not a straight path, let's put it that way. (laughs) I'm a generalist, so I studied at London School of Economics, while I was studying there, I had a job working for Stella McCartney. Um, it took me to setting up a fly posting business and a leaflet business in London as I chose the most expensive city on earth to study. And that eventually took me into advertising, which I did for, I don't know, 10 years or something something like that. No regrets. I mean, I think the advertising industry gets a bit of a bad rep sometimes, um, but I still think that the training that working in a good advertising agency gives you in strategic thinking um, in the, you know, analyzing and distilling an idea is really critical to, to any business. But by 2005, I was pretty much done with being in an agency and certainly the market had shifted so much that everybody believed that they could be creative. Um, you know, tooling was beginning to come into place where, you know, you could be a photographer if you wanted to be, you could be a filmmaker and the, um, the sort of exclusivity that an agency had on creativity was definitely disappearing. Again, not all negative, it just was a big change. So my path took me to setting up uh, another venture studio, which at the time was relatively novel, but today you know, there must be a gazillion venture studios out there. And what we wanted to do was basically create different tools and products that we thought would be relevant to the, to the creative community. One of them was called Artists and Algorists, which was a very early NFT play. Way too early, no one was interested. <laughs> the idea of having digital art was, um, back then, just not something that people were concerned about. But WeTransfer definitely was and WeTransfer was started by two friends and I joined them nine months later to you know, work on something that we bootstrapped. So we had to keep doing consultancy work and advertising agency work on the side to, to pay the bills. So I only really left the agency world in about 2018. Once we are fully committed to just focusing on we transparent. I still think I sort of play an agency role, even in the business that we have today. We, we have a ton of creative people we hire. We are very much focused on trying to make sure that, you know, we tell interesting stories around our audience and try to make sure that we are using the same sort of tactics that I learned early in my career to have a conversation with people. And that's the most that you can ask for anyone today is to simply have a conversation. Um, more than that, I think is really beyond most brand stretch
0: made you want to write a book about the internet?
1: Well, back in 2015, that's when I started it. I mean, you probably know this too. The publishing world is not very fast moving. Um, It's
0: extraordinarily slow compared with either of our businesses, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, uh, in hindsight, I don't know if it was the smartest idea or use of my time ever. And by the time I'd actually got the book published, a lot of what I'd written, I felt was already very commonplace and well understood. But in 2015, when I started it, that was Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, I was deeply disillusioned with the state of the internet. Something that you know I really believed when I first got into the internet was going to be amazingly exciting. And Tim Berners-Lee had been a pioneer. There were prospectors all over this place, but yet there was still great hope for companies to be able to push through and create something that people had never seen before. And what happened was that it, it was very quickly becoming a space that was owned and managed and controlled by very few. It, is, it became a very elitist space, and my kids at the time were 8 and 10, and um, we were in a school in America where big data was talked about all the time. It was They were fascinated by how much insight they could extract from my kids' behavior, what they were reading, the pace of their reading, their skills in math, their ability to be able to focus, their attention span, and all of this data was basically being amassed. And the company that was amassing it was eventually bought by Google. And what I didn't like and made me, you know, really wary was where the internet was going, where this data was going, and how it was potentially even being misused. I think for and potentially affecting the future of a kid that's eight years old. And what I mean by that is, I think there will be enough AI and enough data around, you know, an eight-year-old's career, de- um, educational development, and a nine-year-old's and a ten-year-old's, that by the age of Thirteen or fourteen, probably a computer is able to do, determine whether or not you're going to get into Harvard without having to do the exam. And I and I just thought, okay, I think I need to write something about this because it worries me that this is potentially how it's being used. So the book really was just an exploration of how data is being used. Um, you know what what companies are doing with it. I didn't have the answers. I don't have the answers. But my sort of plea was for people to be aware of what's happening. For individuals to make. You know, sensible choices for companies to make sure they're being responsible with their data and for legislators to get involved. And I'm very pleased to say, I think we've seen a ton of legislators getting involved in the last two years. There is you know, finally some serious, sensible conversations happening in governments across the world, not just in Germany and the UK, but everywhere, restricting the use of you know big data or the amount of monopolies controlling information. And I think most importantly, there's been a wake up call for You know, you and me, the man on the street, understanding what the cost of convenience is. And that's ultimately what it comes down to.
0: Were you to write this book now, how much do you think this problem is being addressed. I mean, you say the conversations are happening, but do we know what the actual solutions are to this problem? I mean, you know, we still feel at a point where this is a worry still.
1: Well, the fascin- I think the fascinating thing right now is if I look at the Web 3.0 space and NFTs, the exact same thing is happening as happened 25 years ago with the internet. So the goalposts just moved again. That's where I think it's really interesting. Probably by the time government and legislation have got Web 2.0 fixed. Everyone basically will be prospecting and mining Web 3.0, and the government is going to have to get their head around that. Blockchain, cryptocurrencies, the death of fiat currency, whatever the topics are that they're going to have to try and deal with. In a decentralized, incredibly private and encrypted space, I think it's going to be a real challenge.
0: Isn't part of the problem there that, you, you know, you rightly point out that legislators always seem to be fixing the previous problem, isn't part of the problem that we don't have enough people who are specialised in the tech sector in politics, you know, working in the world of legislation yet?
1: Oh, I, that, I mean, that used to be the case. If you look at the US now, Tim Wu is now advising. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's changed. And I would like to think if you have, if they understood and understand that they need to have somebody like Tim Wu in place, I can't imagine for a second that they're not already thinking about web 3.0 and and what the impact will be on society and this is always a difficult question right i think can you intervene without killing it and i do think there's a real healthiness to the development of a new space i think it needs to exist i'd love to see the gentrification happen in web 2.0 but it's quite likely that as with most cityscapes we we'd only gentrify the old once we've already erected the new so we'll probably all rush towards web 3.0 start building and scaling there and then go back and look at web 2.0 and see what we're going to do with that. But I do now think it's hmm. it's it's so much healthier than it was 5 years ago, that's for sure.
0: Now you've mentioned that we transfer is a certified B corporation. Could you just set out a little bit of what that means and just in your sort of daily operation what the company has to think about to justify that?
1: So a B corp is basically a you know, it's an organic food label for, for companies really. Um, If I was to have a vision as to where B Corps would be, ultimately in the future, B Corps wouldn't exist. They um, would have done their job. The organic food label would have been removed from the packaging and you just know that it's good Um, and everyone's sort of up to speed. For now, the job is really about education and trying to get companies to think about being responsible. So, for us, um, it wasn't a huge leap because from day one, we gave away 30% of our media to support up and coming artists and projects. We'd spent a lot of time with Martha Lane Fox from uh, where well, she had an organization then called Dot Everyone that was really trying to lead with regards to responsible technology. So, we were already doing a lot around transparency and governance and trying to make sure that we were acting responsibly. But as any business that wants to get into becoming a B Corp, you need to think about diversity, you need to think about sustainability. Um, You need to think about your partners, the employee base that you have. And really, it's anything to do with, you know, just being a good citizen, but putting on that good citizen hat as a business as opposed to as an individual.
0: One of the issues that WeTransfer has looked at is gun reform, and that to me feels quite bold, given that obviously in the UK that's not a controversial issue to be, you know, sort of a, something that's quite settled in people's minds. But it certainly is not that way in the US. Has that created any problems for the company or any difficulties?
1: No, no, not in the slightest. In the contrary, I mean, it was it wasn't something we went into lightly. But I was living in the US at the time of the Parkland shootings, uh, with both my kids in school. And, um, you know, we were already struggling with the idea that an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old had to have lockdown drills. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And I really despised, actually, the idea that my kids would have to even understand what that was. So when the Parkland shootings happened, we just felt like we should do something. And again, going back to our audience and the media that we have... We have huge reach, and we uh, just felt that at that moment we had to really do something with it. So some serendipity happened. A friend of mine was working on the March for the Lives. They were going to Washington. Another friend of ours was talking to a producer who wanted to put on a film with veterans talking about their belief that semi-automatic weapons should be banned. So we sort of threw ourselves into this project, produced a film that was featuring veterans really just talking very honestly about how they knew that um, semi-automatic weapons were a terrible thing and launched this film, took all the advertising off WeTransfer and uh, and just focused on gun reform with a whole load of other projects that we commissioned. And it, the film was shown at, at, the, at the Washington March. And um, we spent a lot of time worrying that we were going to alienate a lot of people. That was not the case in the slightest. We found that you know, companies that were daring to make that sort of statement I think were so well respected. And certainly for our community it was a no brainer. Absolutely everybody was behind it. Obviously a few people complained. But you know, you're always gonna annoy a couple of people, even when you're doing amazing stuff that you think no one's gonna have a problem with. It's amazing <laughs> who can find a problem with something.
0: And what about climate change? What's your work in that area as a company?
1: Well, I mean as a B Corp we have to make sure that you know we're hitting different goals for those people that don't know you have to recertify every 3 years to become a B Corp again and basically they move the goalposts so it gets tougher every 3 years you know we we have to be on our toes and with regards to making sure that our partners are our, our B Corps and the, the service that we run is as clean and uh, climate friendly as it possibly can be this year we became climate neutral we, we're certainly on the way our biggest challenge is, of course, the servers that power WeTransfer. Um, Our service is powered by AWS, so Amazon runs the back end of WeTransfer. They have servers all over the world. Everybody wants fast, so we have to have servers in different countries. Different countries have different policy, and some of them are greener than others. And our mission really is to work with AWS constantly, and it's a constant conversation, to lobby them, to provide us with as much green energy as they possibly can, to provide us with as much insight as they possibly can. And our goal for next year is to really make sure that we're telling our users exactly what their usage looks like. So we have, we're building a carbon calculator, they'll be able to see exactly what it means to upload a file, what you're using in terms of oh, how many grams of CO2 you're emitting and what you can do about it. Because uh, the most interesting thing around the digital carbon emission space is that most people are not even thinking about it. You talk about climate change, we're thinking cars, planes, um, perhaps we're thinking about you know diesel motors and and engineering, but the the idea that you sitting behind a Netflix show on a 60 inch TV in HD is you know emitting 500 grams of carbon an hour, it's not on anyone's radar at all. and I don't want to ruin anyone's fun. but if you understood that the difference between watching something in SD and HD is half the carbon emissions, you wouldn't even notice the difference on your TV. Just switch it to SD.
0: One of the things I thought was interesting from a pandemic emissions point of view is you might have thought as a non-expert that emissions would have fallen drastically during the pandemic because we all sat at home um, and actually they didn't fall that dramatically at all and perhaps that's part of this
1: for sure everything moved i mean unfortunately there are too many of us on this planet i'm not saying that we should remove any but if you know everybody suddenly switches from regular milk to soya it creates another problem If everybody moves from the highways to being behind a super high retina display, it creates another problem. Um, So unfortunately, you know, with so many of us, we we just have to be much more moderate in everything that we do and be very cognizant of what it is that we're doing. Because to suddenly have a a household of four people, you know, working and studying from home or sitting behind screens, of course, it's going to do something to the service, but most people are not conscious, I think, of the impact of uh, the internet or computers. Yeah.
0: Um, WeTransfer has had some really interesting partnerships with artists and organisations: Bjork, John Legend, the Nelson Mandela Foundation, um, the UN uh, Development Programme, even. What do you get out of those programmes? What, what, and what do they get
1: in return? Oh, I mean, we get a huge satisfaction. If I think of it personally, I mean, we've worked with some of the greatest artists in the world. You mentioned a few, but Bernardine Everesto, Jarvis Cocker, Riz Ahmed, Maria Abramovich. I mean, we've done some amazing work. And this year in particular has been a really exciting year. We did a fantastic project with Marina Abramovich, honestly, one of the greatest living legends in the art world, but also a really nice person. You know, really interesting, fascinating, still energized individual. And uh, I think it's amazing that we have built a platform that on the face of it is a file sharing business, but you know, at the, in, the, in its core is so much more than that. And that these artists actually recognize that and want to work with us to get exposure. Working with someone like Riz or with Marina or John Legend, they come to us because there is no other platform on the planet that has the same sort of real estate that we have that we can gift to an artist or a project to give it visibility. There, is, there literally isn't another one. Even the Sunday Times, your front sheet uh, you know, of the Sunday Times is made up of lots of blocks and lots of text. We transfer as one visual and it fills up the whole screen and it belongs to somebody else. It's totally unique.
0: What do you think is behind the success of the company overall? Why is it, you know, my go-to, and I'm sure so many people listening go to in terms of
1: transferring files? I mean, I think there are so many reasons for it, but I think it's in all honesty, the people that loved us in the beginning and the people that still love us today, I think love us for the simplicity of the platform and it, for its non-obtrusiveness. We really try very hard to be human. So you don't get spammed with a thousand emails from WeTransfer unless you're sending files up and down all day long, Then you, but that's your own fault. <laughs> But in general, from us, you know, we try to treat it, as I said earlier on, like a conversation or a relationship. So, um, you know, we're there when you need us. We try to make the experience as beautiful as we possibly can when you're there. And then I think there's nothing nicer in life than a surprise. You know, and I don't mean surprise me with a gift on my birthday, because every company knows your birthday. And of course, they're going to send you that stupid email on your birthday offering you 10% of something. But to genuinely give you a surprise when you turn up and you use a service and you say, oh, my God, is, is that Jarvis Cocker on WeTransfer? That's funny. And then you go off in a rabbit hole of something that's really well written and well produced and engaging and enlightening. I think that's one of the greatest things that anybody can do. And most tech companies, certainly in very early days, treated everybody as users and not as humans, not as individuals. And therefore, I think they had no real intention of building a relationship. They just had an intention of generating revenue.
0: And in terms of the actual ethos of the company, was that built in right from the beginning?
1: Yeah. You know, it was a design driven business. And from the get go, there were beautiful big images in the background. And in the very early days, all the images in the background clicked out to the artist website themselves. So it was it was even more altruistic than it is today. It was generally about you discovering somebody and then going and finding out more about them. And we would you know give it away or sell it to those individuals. But yeah, in 2009, again, when the website you know, first launched, you've got to remember Minecraft had pretty much just launched. Gmail was in beta. Michael Jackson had just died. Obama had just come into power. It was really a different space. And what I think is really interesting, particularly looking at the NFT space right now, we came in and our biggest competitors were a lot of the companies that were really busy doing piracy, rapid share, mega upload. And then there was BitTorrent. And BitTorrent was, you know, the crypto kid of, of the early 2000s that no one really understood. And today it's exactly the same thing happening in Web 3.0. It all looks and feels like BitTorrent, which, you know, people didn't understand. So I think there's a phenomenal opportunity coming up for companies, people, individuals to come in and, and help make this more accessible. To break it down so that, you know, Naldo, my partner, who you know, was in the business in the beginning, always said that it was built for his mom and dad. Um, and they could use it and they needed no, you know, uh, manual to describe how you needed to send something through WeTransfer. It was just dead easy.
0: Tell to me a bit about um, WePresent. Where did that idea come from? And, you know, how much has it grown since you launched it?
1: So really early on, we did loads of projects and we commissioned a load of films called, well, we had a production company in London. So we, we made films called One Minute Wonders. And there were 60 second films featuring a whole host of different individuals from Damon Albarn to Erica Badu and, and all sorts of people. That then extended into the creative class, which was an exploration based on Mike Davies' City of Quartz book about this new breed of creative thinkers that were that were arising. And we featured people in London and Cuba and, you know, all over the place. And what we found was that we had all this content floating around the internet, but it was everywhere and no one could find it. And we thought it was great, but no one else could actually find it unless we were driving them to it. So we present actually started as a platform called We Transfer Culture, it then morphed into a site called This Works, and then finally became we Present. only in 2018, I think. It was really intended to be a house, you know, where we would put all the stuff that we'd been making under one roof so that people could find it and explore. And you know, today we have 3 million readers that turn up every month to dive into the stuff that we're doing. Like I said, we've we've done some amazing work, and what I think is the most special about WePresent is it's backed 100% by WeTransfer, so there's no advertising, major play, um, you don't get bothered by ads or banners or anything else, and we have a separate team managing it. That means it's not a corporate blog or an extension of WeTransfer. It's you know it's intended to be there with an ambition to compete with the Atlantic, not to compete with I don't know Adobe's internal blog or dropbox's culture platform or something it's really something that we felt needed to exist and we had this again phenomenal opportunity because so many of the world's most amazing creators used our platform and there weren't that many places for their projects to be told or showcased.
0: And what's the growth for WeTransfer in the future? What do you see, you know, five years down the line, the company doing, given that it's so specialist in doing one thing incredibly well? What's the future?
1: Well, so WeTransfer is famous for doing one thing really well, as is Google. But like Google, it has many different things that we're up to. So WeTransfer is the historically famous tool that everyone used for file sharing. but. We also have Collect, which is a mobile app for rich media mood boards. Paste is a beautiful presentation tool, um, very sexy equivalent of Keynote. Paper is number one drawing app, most downloaded drawing app on the App Store. So if your kids may be getting near the the age where they'll be able to doodle and sketch, Paper is a beautiful tool. And with WeTransfer, we've recently been building out a multitude of different features that will take it from just being about file sharing into more of the collaboration space. And then of course, as we've discussed already, we have We Present. But the most exciting thing for me, in all honesty, is is the foundation. So we started a foundation last year. You know, I'm really proud that the work that we've been doing, you know, has really begun to become something substantial that's, you know, solid. And in the beginning, you know, we were doing projects and giving away money and media, but it would always come out of marketing. And if a company is spending money on investing in Those sort of initiatives through marketing, marketing is always the first thing that gets cut. Mm -hmm. So I'm really proud that we set up this foundation and it's supported with 1% of revenue from WeTransfer. At a certain point, a company becomes so big that it it becomes a bit more of a corporation, and lots of the people that join the company are very fixed on making sure that it delivers financially. Um, I love having the foundation as a hook because I'm equally motivated that it works financially because I can really do something good with that money. And in 2022, We will start our first grants program we're supporting young artists uh, through europe and we've just closed a massive six-month research project really trying to find out who needs it most you know which sectors which areas of europe really need the money most and next year we'll start handing out grants um, and an awards program and as long as we transfer continues to do well financially we can really start to make an impact and particularly because of COVID, you know, an awful lot of the industry got badly cut.
0: Thank you very much, Damien. Pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: The Ideas Report from WeTransfer and Damien Bradfield is available to view at wetransfer.com. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. I'm Rosamund Irwin, and thanks for listening.